Well, amen for the promise of our powerful God that reminds us that finishing the race of faith is not dependent on our own strength, but depends on the one who ultimately holds us to the very end. And so praise God for his preserving power, uh, something we see constantly in the Christian life, something we see particularly on display in the book that we are venturing into this morning, the book of Joshua. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open to Joshua chapter 1. If you need a Bible this morning, uh, have no fear. We got two of our best-looking men. We got Norm and John here. So you just raise your hand up at them as they walk past. We'll make sure that you get a Bible in your hands that you can follow along with us this morning as we formally begin our journey through the book of Joshua. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we spent some extended time uh, discussing some reasons why we should study the book of Joshua. So we said it's not just important to know what Joshua contains, but really the why. Why venture into the book of Joshua? And one of the things we talked about was about Joshua being a book about putting the past behind, but it's not just about putting the past behind, but also about moving forward in faith, about trusting the Lord for what lies ahead. And for Joshua and the people of Israel, they were certainly at a a crossroads point in their history. We could say in our contemporary terms, they were in a season of transition, And we can certainly understand and relate to that type of language in our own day and age, can't we? Uh, We recognize that there are seasons of transition in the life of even a church, but even in everyday life. Uh, Ben just got done talking about and praying for how we have many students and teachers and administrators who are in a season of transition out of the summer months and preparing to enter into a new journey of a school year. We certainly know that others in the church are in different seasons of life, of transition, perhaps. I know of one couple here who is going to be entering into a stage of marriage later this week. Perhaps some of you are in the venturing stage of new parenthood or preparing to welcome in a new child into your household. Or for some of you, entering into a new season with work, maybe a promotion or a new uh, position at work, or perhaps even contemplating that next stage of retirement. We recognize that each season of life brings with it an opportunity to trust God for what lies ahead, to move forward ultimately in faith. And it's with that backdrop in mind that I want to invite you to stand as we read this morning from Joshua chapter 1 starting in verse 1, and we're just going to read the first nine verses together. We'll cover the entirety of the chapter this morning, but for our uh, reading together, we're going to cover the first nine verses as we read together this morning. So Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory." 
No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is God's word for us to meditate on together this morning. So you may be seated and let's now ask for the Lord's favor as we go to our time of study. Father, we do now come to you asking for your kindness on us as we unpack your word together. Uh, We recognize that Being able to comprehend your truth requires a supernatural work. We need your spirit. We need uh, humility of heart. And so we do pray for that now, Uh, especially, Lord, as we contemplate what it is to be a people who are faithful to walk by faith and not live in the mistakes of the past. Uh, We want to be a people who are honorable and pleasing to you, who are lights to this watching world. And so... We recognize that your truth has the power to transform us and to make us more into the image of the one who has saved us. And so we just come boldly asking now that you would do that work in our hearts and our lives, Lord, for not our own sake, not for our own comfort and for our own success, but Lord, ultimately for the glory of your name. So would you be so kind to do that today, we would ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of us in this room can relate to the fun that comes from early baby moments. Uh, there's a lot of firsts in the lives of a young child. Could go through the whole long list of them. The first giggles. The first words where mom and dad are often in a competition to see who gets the first words, mama or dada. Uh, We love seeing first of babies going from bottles to real food. We enjoy seeing babies transition to uh, just normal gums to to teeth, or maybe maybe we don't enjoy that transition quite as much because it comes with a lot of pain and screams and cries. But perhaps none of those firsts are as exciting or as monumental as a baby's first steps. After all, the first year of a child is filled with a lot of transitions leading up to that. Uh, From a baby simply laying there to eventually maybe finding a place of being able to roll over, to possibly sit up, to crawl, to be able to pull themselves up and stand, and then ultimately, one day, to finally take those first wobbly steps. They're fun to watch. It's an exciting new phase, something that we in our household got to experience over the summer months ourselves. 
And it's exciting because it indicates the start of a new phase of life. It takes them all kinds of new places, both for the better and for the worser, we could say. But it's with that picture in mind that I want us to jump into Joshua chapter 1, where we see God's spiritual children, the nation of Israel, at a similar place, at a similar crossroads, an exciting transitionary period after wandering around in the wilderness for the past 40 years. Their camp is set up to the east of the Jordan River in the land of Moab. They're looking across at the land that the Lord has promised them for generations now. And the time has finally come for them to enter. And the challenge before them today is to take those essential first steps of faith the same ones that they failed to take or their parents failed to take 40 years earlier. And the question that lies before them today is this, what will they do? What will they do? How will they respond this time around? And as we look at Joshua chapter 1 this morning, I want us to see that this really sets forth before us the nature of it, what it looks like to follow God's lead. And following God's lead ultimately begins by stepping forward in faith. Everything that we are going to look at for the next few months starts right here. These essential first steps of faith. This begins with what the people are going to do in response to what God has said. And that's really the essential nature of what faith is all about. Faith is how we respond to what God has said. In fact, if we were to put a, a definition to faith, we could simply say that faith is a trust in God that is expressed through obedience in response to what God has said. Those three essential components to it, trusting God, responding in obedience to what he has said. And guess what, church? That was the nature of faith for the Israelites on the plains of Moab in Joshua's day, and it remains the exact nature of faith here in central Illinois today. Uh, Nothing has changed all these thousands of years later. And that's what I want you to see this morning as we jump into Joshua chapter 1, that the principles of faith and following God's lead have not changed. What God expected of the Israelites, God expects of us as well. And so as we go through our passage this morning, I want to consider with you four necessary steps of faith, four essential or necessary first steps of faith for following God's lead. And the first step of faith I think we see in verses 1 through 4 where we see that it begins with trust in God's promises. The first step of faith is to trust in God's promises. And this call to trust I think feels a little ambitious considering the somber nature of how this book begins. It really reminds us in many ways of the opening lines of Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. If you are a literary fan here, you know how that book begins. You know it begins with those words, what? 
Marley was dead to begin with. Marley was dead. If we were to say anything for Joshua chapter 1, it begins very similar. Moses is dead to begin with. Not exactly the pregame motivational talk for the team, right? If you're in the sports world, you know how it's common for the coach to come in and rally the team around, get them motivated. This is not exactly the inspiration that you lead with most of the time, is it? And it serves as an immediate reminder to Joshua and to the Israelites of what they lacked, as if the deck didn't already feel stacked against them to begin with. And the contrast between Moses and Joshua looms quite large here, showing that Joshua has some really big sandals to fill, doesn't he? In fact, if we were to look back onto the the previous page of your Bible, Deuteronomy 34, the ending of the previous book, what does it have to say about Moses as Deuteronomy comes to an end? Look at Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent to him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants, to all the land, for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel." pretty significant, isn't it? And even in verses 1 and 2, we see that Moses and his legacy lives on. He is referred to in opening verses here of Joshua as the servant of the Lord. In fact, that phrase, the servant of the Lord, is an emphasis that we will not be able to escape in the book of Joshua. 18 times Moses is referred to as the servant of the Lord. 14 of those times in the, New, in the Old Testament come in the book of Joshua. Even though Moses is dead, his shadow and his presence still looms large over Joshua, almost in this intimidating sense. I appreciate the way that Dale Ralph Davis says this. He says, there was no one like Moses. No one as great as Moses until the one greater than Moses came. And now Moses had died. You can imagine the dismay in Israel. Although you expected it, were informed of it, were prepared for it, what do you do when the servant of God dies and a raging river lies between you and the land to inherit? What do you have left when everything the first five books of the Bible have been preparing you for ends in a funeral? End quote. So what's God's game plan here? What's God's game plan here? Well, in Deuteronomy 34, before I read those verses about Moses, notice what it says in verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. We see here now as we enter into the book of Joshua, the succession plan. And by contrast, uh, Joshua is referred to a little bit differently than Moses. 
Notice in verse 1, Moses gets the title of the servant of the Lord. Joshua gets to be labeled as what? Moses' assistant. (laughs) He was essentially his chief of staff, his right-hand man, and he doesn't even have a cool dad name. He's just called Joshua the son of none, right? That's That's the label you get to have, the son of none. And yet this is the man God appointed to lead the people moving forward. Why is that? Well, we never hear it specified, but I think there's good reason to believe it is because Joshua, as we saw last week, was one of two men who trusted the promises of God the first time around, right? First time the men were uh, set to inherit the land, they sent the spies in. There were only two men who came back with a positive report because they were trusting in the Lord, Caleb and Joshua. And the very first words that God speaks to Joshua here in verse 2, lead these people in. Take them into the land. How is God able to ask so much of Joshua? Because of the promises that he has given, they have not changed. Look at verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. It's all based on God's word and trusting God to do what he has promised that he will do. In other words, Moses may be dead, but God's promises are not. He says there, just as I promised Moses. In other words, that promise does not change with time and it does not change with their failures. God is always true to his word. He follows through on his promises that he gives to his people. And the question for Joshua and the, the, the question really for us still even today is this, do you trust that? Do you believe that God remains true to his word? I think there's an important point for us to ponder here and it's the fact that God has given us everything that we need to move forward in faith. He has given us everything that we need to move forward in faith. And that may sound surprising because as you look at verses 1 through 4, let me ask you this. What's the game plan here? What's the strategy for the army? What's the, uh, what's the next step here? Because if you are looking at it closely, you realize there's a lot of gaps. There's a lot that's left unsaid, a lot of details that are not spoken for. There's not a lot of explanation here. There's only one thing. It's a promise. It's a promise. And it's the promise that God will do what he has said he will do. Why is that? Because God's word is enough. Because God's word is sufficient. It is a willingness for God's people to trust God's word. Church, understand this this morning. Faith is not about knowing all the details. 
Faith is not having every answer explained for every question that we might have. Faith is trusting what has been said and acting in response to that. And showing it with obedience. It is trusting the promises of God. It's no different than what God promises to us in 2 Peter 1.3, where he says that his divine power, Peter says his divine power, God's divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. God may not provide everything that you want to know, but he does promise to provide you everything that you need to move forward in faith. His truth is sufficient. His word can be trusted. And that is necessary for you to believe this morning just as it was for Joshua and the Israelites in their day. To be a people who live by God's word, to trust it even when life is hard. And for those of you even here this morning who don't know the Lord, who are not maybe walking by faith, who haven't responded in obedience to the Lord, Joshua 1, in many ways, is a a template for us of how salvation even works in the first place. God is holding out for these people an inheritance. He is holding out for them hope of salvation and deliverance. He's saying, it is secure, it is promised to you, but what you must do is respond by trusting in that, by responding in faith and obedience. That's no difference for us today in the promise of what God has set forth for us in Jesus Christ, right? Right? The promise of salvation and deliverance that he has offered to us as a free gift of his grace that must be received by faith and a humility that surrenders everything of our own. And so the first essential step of faith for these people and for us is to trust in God's promises. But the second step of faith that we must see here in this passage in verse 5 is this idea that we must rely on on God's presence. It's not just about trusting in God's promises, it's about relying on God's presence. Look at what he says here in verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. This may be just one simple verse, but it may be the most important verse in this entire chapter. It's an extension of the promise that God gave to Joshua in verse 3. In fact, look at the emphasis placed there on that just as phrase. What did God promise to Joshua in verse 3? That he would give this land to Joshua and the Israelites just as he promised Moses. Now what is he saying here in verse 5? I will be with you just as I was with Moses. God is not holding anything back from Joshua that he needs. Here he promises to be with him in the same way that he was with Moses. Think about how powerful that must be. Think about how much Comfort that must be to Joshua. The very same God who guided Moses and empowered Moses with the ten plagues. Who empowered Moses to help the people cross the Red Sea. The same God who empowered Moses to help bring forth manna from heaven and water from a rock. That same power is now at work in the person of Joshua. 
You see, Joshua had every reason to be weak and afraid, the opposite of strong and courageous. I mean, think about it. He had big sandals to fill. He was leading arguably one of the most stubborn and rebellious people in human history. And on the other side of the river were 30-plus armies who wanted to destroy him, and he was expected to be the last one standing. Have every reason to be weak and afraid. That's a lot to ask of this man to lead these people. And so this very promise is exactly what Joshua needed at this time. What does that do for your heart today? Because I think as we look at this verse, we can be reminded of the truth that there is no greater sense of peace than the assurance of God's presence. There is no greater sense of peace than the assurance of God's presence. There is great power in feeling and knowing the presence of someone else. I remember back when I was in high school and junior high, when I competed in track and field, I I still to this day can't remember a time that not either my mother or my father was present at a meet to watch me compete. And I don't say that because I feel like they idolize me in some type of way. I say that because I remember that even as a young person, just knowing that someone's presence was there to watch gave a sense of peace and courage that could not come from anywhere else. It's not that that meant that I did better that particular day than other days, but the sense of peace and comfort was special. And you may think that all this talk about God's presence feels somewhat too good to be true. After all, that's great for Joshua. This power that was empowering Moses, it's now in Joshua, that feels pretty surreal. What does that even mean for me as a follower of God today? And I think this is where we must remind ourselves that the same promise that Jesus gave to his disciples still remains true for us today. What does Jesus, on the night of his execution, right before he's about to be arrested and tried, his disciples, as he's telling them he's about to leave and depart and no longer be with them, their hearts are filled with anxiety, aren't they? They are filled with concern. They're wondering, what is next for us? And what does Jesus promise them that night? John chapter 14, verses 16 to 18. He says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. No, rather, he says, I am going to send to you a helper, the spirit of truth, who will be with you forever. How does Jesus bring peace to their anxious and fearful hearts? He does so with the promise of his presence. He says, I will send my Holy Spirit to be with you. You will not be left on your own. Jesus' words sound similar to what God told Joshua. I will not leave you as orphans. He tells Joshua here, I will not leave you or forsake you. 
You will not be on your own. You are not going to operate in your own strength. For I will be with you. And all who have God's Spirit, all who have trusted Him, have been given this helper to remind them and draw them back into the heart of the promises of our great God. Promises like Matthew 28 where Jesus promises his people, I will not leave you, I will be with you forever, even to the end of the age. Promises like 1 John 4, 4 where we are told that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And promises like Romans 8, 31 where Paul tells us that if God is for us, then who can be against us? We need to rely and to remember to trust in the presence of the Lord that is with us at all time. And the third step of faith this morning is that we need to commit to God's priorities. It's not just about trusting in God's promises or relying on his presence, but it's also about committing to God's priorities. We see this in verses 6 through 9, and there is a command here that is repeated three times, and it's the one that you're all no doubt familiar with here in chapter 1. It is this command to be strong and courageous. And I think that's certainly what Joshua needed to hear, but what is that actually based on, or what is it really based around? Because each time this command is given, it revolved around a particular commitment to the Word of God. Notice what he says here in verse 7. Be careful to do all according to the law. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. What law is he referring to here? Well, he's talking about the first five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, which had actually been written by this time. And he's telling Joshua, commit yourself to knowing these things. Read them, know them, live them out in your daily life. It's all about how to live in obedience to God and trusting in his promises. After all, are not the first five books of the Bible so much about the promises of God that he has given to his people to remember those, to live in them? And Joshua is called to be devoted to these things. In fact, he says here, meditate on them day and night. Uh, to meditate is such an interesting concept here. We live in a world where meditation is, is more mystical than it is biblical. Uh, too often, uh, this idea of meditation is this idea of emptying your mind and transcending all that's around you so that nothing is distracting you. And the biblical idea of, of, of meditation is actually the opposite of that. It's not to empty your mind. It's actually to fill your mind. It's to allow your, God's truth to saturate your mind and your thinking so much so that it's actually close on your mouth. In fact, the word meditation is this word for muttering. It's actually less mental and actually more verbal. And we, if we were to put this into modern language, God wants Joshua to know his Bible. And certainly his Bible was not as big as ours is, but it was just as sufficient, just as powerful. And why was this so important for Joshua? Because God makes it clear that success, his success and the success of the people depends on these things. It depends 
on committing themselves to these priorities. Verses 7 and 8, he says, he will have good success wherever he goes and whatever he does if he commits himself to these things. But this is where we must also remind ourselves that God's view of success looks much different than man's, doesn't it? When it talks about success and favor here, that looks far different than the way that our world defines success, doesn't it? There's certainly a lot of perspective on how we might define success today. If we were to see success in uh, terms of our career, we could say it depends on maybe how much money you're making or uh, the promotions and climbing the corporate ladder or setting yourselves up for this really nice retirement. Maybe that's how we should view success. If we were to view it in the realms of accomplishment, maybe for you young people in here, it would have to do with how good of grades that you get, what type of school you get into, your wins on the athletic field or the awards and the accolades you accumulate. If we were to say success is based around our association with people, could say that success is really marriage or children, having a large family, or perhaps even those number of followers or likes you have on your social media account. All of these are genuine perspectives in the world today of what success looks like. But you know how God will determine success for Joshua? Faithfulness. Obedience. Trust. Faith that walks in obedience to God's revealed word. Success in God's eyes is so much more simplistic. It is to trust and obey. What does that look for, like for us? It means to know our Bibles, to read, to know, to memorize, to meditate. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this morning, Scott, this sounds an awful lot like the, the read your Bible more sermon, and you, you certainly catch on quick. Uh, but you may say, well, but doesn't this pertain particularly to Joshua and his situation? I mean, this isn't necessarily true for, for me, is it? Well, what does Psalm 1 have to say about the blessed man? The blessed man in any context, right? It says that that man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and it is that man who does so who will find good success in all that he does, he what? He prospers. Still, Ralph Davis says, constant, careful absorbing of the word of God leads to obedience to it. Lack of study results in lack of obedience. And so the question for you this morning is this, are you prioritizing what God prioritizes? Because this is his battle plan for following him by faith. But there is one more important step that we must consider this morning. It's not just about trusting in the Lord's promises. It's not just about relying on his presence. It's not about just committing to his priorities. Fourth and finally this morning, this final step of faith is about joining up with God's people. And the direction shifts from God commanding Joshua to Joshua commanding the people in verses 10 and 11. Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan and to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord is giving you to possess. 
We see Joshua responding in faith by encouraging the people and calling them to prepare to take the land. He is starting to fully move forward in this trust in the Lord here. But in verses 12 to 15, his focus shifts to a particular group of people within the Israelite camp. And it is very interesting. Look at what he does in verses 12 to 15. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he is to you, and they also shall take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And you may be asking yourselves, what is going on here? What is, Mo- what is Joshua talking about is ha- happening here? Why is he singling out these two and a half tribes And there's some important history that you have to know about here to fully understand. If you were to go back in your Bibles to Numbers 32, which I hear the groans, right? Because you're like back in Numbers again. (laughs) Numbers 32 is the history of this story. These three tribes here, after being in the wilderness for a long stretch of time, in chapter 32, it says in verse 1, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and they saw the land of Jezer and the land of Gilead beyond the place. Uh, and there was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, uh, verse 4, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Uh, what's happening here? Well, you see the three tribes there on the right-hand side of the map. Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben, uh, they found out that this land to the east of the promised land was actually really good for all their livestock. And so they told Moses and asked Moses, could we just have this land instead of the promised land? This will do for us. This is fine. And the concern that Moses had, and rightfully so, was that these people would be tempted to think what? Well, if we settle here, then that means we don't have to go with our brothers into battle and fight for the land that the Lord is promising to the rest, right? We've staked our claim here. We're good. We've got our inheritance. We don't need to go with our brothers off to war. It's like the child who decides to figure out a way to get out of the chores, right? If I do this, then maybe I won't have to do that. And Moses sees right through this facade, doesn't he? If you were to read verses 8 and 13, he would see this concern is very real because he sees, number one, the temptation to not help his brothers, but also, number two, if they start to have this mentality that says, this this land is good enough without the land that the Lord is inheriting to us, what might that do to the rest of the tribes? They might be tempted to follow in similar suits. They might be tempted to do the same things that they did the last time which was to not take the land by faith, the land that God has promised to them. And Moses' concern is that this might be the nation of Israel's undoing. And so this is a pivotal 
point in the book of Joshua already in the opening chapter. Back here, Joshua issues a call for these people to remember that Moses said, you can't have this land, but when the time comes, you must go and fight with your brothers. And so the question now is, will they do that? Will they respond in the way that they promised to Moses? Well, how do they respond? Verse 16. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. We're ready to join the fight. Even more amazingly, they do not do so begrudgingly, they do so willingly. Verse 17, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, kind of a funny line, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to the death. Only be strong and courageous. They even offer encouragement to Joshua here, the same encouragement that God gave to Joshua to be strong and courageous. And so you have God's people after 40 years of waiting and anticipating their entrance into the promised land, united and ready to move forward together in faith. This is a marvelous yet overlooked section of Joshua 1. And so I don't want to be too quick to move past it because I believe that there is an important principle that remains true for us even today. And that is this, that walking by faith does not mean walking alone. It's a reminder to us today that God values community. We were made for community with other people. As Tyson even mentioned earlier, there's no such thing in the scriptures as a lone ranger Christian. And that's important in a culture where we live in, where we live in a very individualistic society that prioritizes your individual rights and your individuality, right? Following God is not just about you, your Bible and your coffee, your Instagram account that shows, yeah, I'm still doing it, I'm still engaged, I'm in the fights. Part of what it means to move forward in faith is a willingness to do life together with other people. That's why God has given us the church, he has saved you into a family, a community of believers. And yes, this is a big step of faith because people, including God's people, guess what? Are messy. They're sinful. They're broken. They're imperfect. And so, yes, this is a step of faith on the part of God's people to trust themselves to other people. But if this section teaches us anything, is that God values unity among his people despite their shortcomings. That doesn't mean that you have to feel mushy-gushy over everyone in the church, but it does mean showing love and care and deference. It means contributing and doing your part for the work of the Lord just as the other tribes resolve to do for the rest of their brothers. And so I want to encourage you today to take that step of faith that moves you closer to God's people rather than farther away. Walking by faith does not mean walking alone. And I can only imagine how intimidating this task of taking the promised land must have looked like to Joshua and to the Israelites. It had to be worrisome to them. You had every reason to be weak and fearful on your own. 
But God's plan for you is to move forward in faith with an army of believers who are right there by your side. It is a call for you to link arms and join up with God's people. And so as we close today, I want to encourage you this morning, just as God encouraged Joshua to be strong and courageous as you move forward in faith. Think about this. If there's a command that is repeated in one chapter four times, that probably means there's some emphasis, right? We often think about this idea of being strong and courageous in our culture as something that you conjure up on your own, right? To, to, to not cry, to be strong, to, to man up, to uh, believe in yourself. But as we've studied the nature of faith this morning, we realize that the call to be strong and courageous looks far different for God's people, doesn't it? In fact, it's the opposite of self-centered strength and courage. It's actually to be weak and fearful of yourself. It is to operate in humility, seeing your own weaknesses and being afraid of what you might do if you operate in your own strength. We need to stop seeking strength and courage in ourselves and we need to start finding it in the Lord. That's what it means to follow God by faith. It comes from trusting that God is true to his word, that his promises, like his character, never change. It is to rest in the peace that comes through his constant and abiding presence. It is to find success by prioritizing the things that God has given to you as a means of his grace. And it is to always remember that you are not alone in this fight, that you have an army of soldiers who are standing with you arm in arm in this spiritual war. So are you ready to surrender all strength encouraging yourself? And are you ready to place it all in God?